You're listening to Venture in the South, a podcast searching for innovation in the Southern U.S. Join us to make money, have fun, and do good. Welcome back to Venture in the South. I'm David, and I'm doing a special show today in honor of summer vacation, mainly because the founder I had lined up to interview rescheduled because he's on vacation. So I had to come up with something different. And so what I thought I would do is a quarterly review of some big topics that affect the startup world that we live in. And so I'm going to talk about the startup bear market, the exit drought we're experiencing, the Federal Reserve and how it impacts on all of those things. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about AI and whether we're in an AI bubble. And I'm finally going to close with crypto, which is forever interesting, and talk about some of the recent events in the crypto world, which were quite dramatic. So let me start out first with the startup bear market. So some stats just to get the conversation oriented accurately. Overall, the North American early stage investment numbers that I came up with are from PitchBook, Crunchbase, Carta, and some other sources. And I want you to recognize that these are not perfect numbers because the nature of the business is somewhat abstract. So these are ballpark numbers and you should treat them as such. So in terms of 2023 investment, Q2 was flat in venture with about a total investment of $13.5 billion, which was down 2% from Q1, but down 47% from Q2 a year ago, so 2022. And the total startup investment was just a third of the peak in Q4 of 2021, so clearly a bear market. There were at least 22 early stage rounds of $100 million or more in Q2, but that's actually down quite a bit. And then looking specifically at seed and angel stage investments in Q1 of 2023, because there's not good data for Q2 yet, investors put about $3.1 billion into North American early stage startups, but that's down 45% year over year and down 7% from Q4 of 2022. The round number declined in a similar fashion. 42% year-over-year, and 7% from Q4 of 22. In terms of valuations, those were down as well. In Q1, seed valuations were down about 14% year-over-year, and Series A was down about 17%. But the really big item was the Series B, which was down 44%. And I didn't go nail down the numbers for Series C and E, but those were also down quite a bit. So the later stage startups were more affected than the early stage. Now, about 20% of all venture investments in Q1 were down rounds. That's the highest proportion since 2018. And 40% of all investments in Series A and Series B companies were bridge rounds in Q1. And that's the highest percentage since 2020. So if you do the math, that means there's only 40% of the funds raised in Q1 were actually conventional rounds that weren't down rounds or bridge rounds. Now, the deal terms changed too in Q1. 15.6% of the deals in Q1 of 2023 involved participating preferred equity versus just 6.5% in Q1 of 2022, so a year ago. So deals are becoming more favorable for investors. And then 8.7% of all deals in Q1 
had a better than 1x participation preference versus just 1.9% in Q1 of 2022. So that's pretty remarkable. Founders are a little bit desperate when they start giving up participation preference over 1x. Now, also illuminating are venture funds. They've been contracting big time. There were seven funds raising over a billion dollars in 2023 so far, so the first half, which is down from 33 raises over a billion dollars in all of 2022. So unless the pace dramatically picks up, this is going to be a big down year for funds. Multiple funds have also devalued. The funds that have devalued more than $1 billion, that includes marquee funds like Andreessen, Tiger, Sequoia, Benchmark, Greylock, and others. Now, on top of that, VCs still seem to be struggling to come to terms with diligence on these mega deals, largely because they feel pressure to participate based on time and LP funds that are sitting as dry powder. And the VCs tend to shrug off their losses, pointing to the power law, even though many times the losses can be directly related to poor diligence. And a case in point is the Sequoia investment in FTX, where a greater than $200 million investment was made with no board of directors, no customer diligence, and no accounting diligence. And the Sequoia lead VC said in an interview after FTX failure that he still believed in FTX's long-term potential, but he acknowledged the company had made some mistakes. He also said that FTX is, quote, learning from its mistakes, close quote. It is, quote, committed to being a responsible player in the crypto industry, close quote. This is just so ridiculous that it's, it's hard to believe that this was said by a lead VC at a billion-dollar fund. And one can only conclude this is a dramatic lack of respect for capital. Now, focusing on the southern U.S., since that's what I'm interested in, the 2023 Q2 funding was down 20% from Q1 at $1.3 billion this second quarter. And then in all of 2022, Early-stage startups raised a total of $10.4 billion across 3,600 deals. And looking just at deals raising $5 million or less, there were 1,157 early-stage startup funding deals in the southern U.S., so 32% of the total in 2022. In 2023, Q2, there were just 135 deals, down 10% from Q1 of 2023. And the average deal size in Q2 this year was $9.6 million, down 12% from Q1. And again, that's an average, realizing that many of these deals were later stage deals raising, you know, $50 to $200 million. So that's the reason for that relatively high average. And then the top sectors in the southern U.S. in Q2 were fintech, raising $340 million. Software, raising $280 million, and in third place with health tech, raising $200 million. And the top states in the South for startup funding were led by Texas with 390 deals, North Carolina with 228 deals, Georgia was third with 188 deals, and close behind was Florida with 175 deals, and then Tennessee in fifth place with 150 deals. And then the top cities are a little bit surprising. Atlanta had a total of $450 million raised in Q2. Nashville, $200 million. Austin was in third place at $150 million raised in Q2. Now, the average deal size for 
early stage startup funding, which is not really well defined. So I generally consider that a company that is early revenue. That average deal size was 2.9 million. And then the top investors in startups in the southern U.S. by historical total investment, so all time, is led by Andreessen Horowitz with over a billion total invested. Next is Greylock Partners with over 700 million. Third is New Enterprise Associates with just over 600 million. Fourth is Bessemer Venture Partners, just over 500 million. And Riverwood Capital at over 400 million brings up the fifth place. Now, let me move on to the exit drought having covered those stats because that sets the stage. So we all know that there's been mighty few exits and and we've all missed those exits because there's no opportunity to recycle capital. And so it compresses the funding market. And that's one of the big reasons why startups are struggling to fund their spending these days. So one thing that has changed recently is the IPO market has loosened up a little bit with Kava Group and Savers Value Village making notable IPOs recently. And then there's many privately filed IPOs that are waiting in the queue for the right moment. And so the question becomes, is this the beginning of the end for the IPO freeze? Now, associated to that IPO freeze is the NASDAQ market is up over 30% year to date. And the rally is broadened in the last six weeks beyond the magnificent seven, so the top seven tech stocks. And so now it's looking like a very broad rally, again, suggesting liquidity. And then the question becomes, is there a new capital cycle coming ahead? And the reason I ask that question is with the return of IPOs creating increasing liquidity, this will support venture as well as private equity recycling of capital. And then if there is a successful soft landing of the U.S. economy, that will likely increase M&A activity as companies are more comfortable expending resources on mergers and acquisitions and thus lead to more exits for startups and, again, more recycling of capital. And then finally, lower interest rates will likely encourage risk capital. And so getting to the Fed, there's considerable evidence now of cooling inflation just released this past week. The June CPI came in at 3% year over year, the smallest increase in two years, while the Fed's favorite core personal consumption expenditure price index increased 3.8% year over year for May. So they're a month behind. The really good news was the June producer price index increased just one-tenth of 1% year over year. That's the smallest increase in three years. And then one final ember to add to the fire is the median year-over-year home prices across the U.S. fell 3.1% in May, making housing slightly more affordable. So if you mix all that together, it would seem that inflation is on the downhill slope and we're coming to the end of Fed rate increases. Now, the Atlanta Fed publishes this website called GDP Now, and they estimate upcoming GDP, and their estimate for Q2 right now is at 2.3%, which is not bad given what's been going on in the economy in the last two quarters. And then the question becomes, well, the Fed is widely expected to raise interest rates 25 basis points in July meeting, and that may be the last increase marking the terminal interest rate for this rate cycle at 525 to 5.5%. And then at some point, rates are likely to come down, probably next year. So putting all that together, maybe there is a compelling case that we're on the beginning of a growth phase in venture. Rolling South is changing venture. 
with no upfront fees for accredited investors. We do the deep diligence for you and offer single startup investments, a rolling fund of several startup investments per quarter, and several traditional fund options of approximately 25 startups. We're co-invested with you, so remember, we only make money if you do. So with that in mind, let me douse a little water on that enthusiasm, and that's on AI. So the question here is, are we in an AI bubble? And I would say a couple things about that. One, data is king. And most of the AI frenzy has been centered on software companies that build tools and do analytics. They don't have data. And as listeners may have heard me say before, the overwhelming circumstances suggest that data is going to be the value in AI. So if you don't have data, you can't really do anything. And data is increasingly hard to come by. Now, secondly, infrastructure is pretty big. So if data is king, infrastructure is queen. And by infrastructure, I mean storage, access, training, and validation. So just think of this in terms of if you're a enterprise-level company with data and you want to harness AI to learn from your data, you need to not only structure your data, you need to store it in a way you can easily access it. And then you need to have tools for training and validation, none of which they're likely to have or able to build. So they're going to have to buy that, most likely subscribe to it. Companies that don't have a lot of data but want to go to market with data-proven algorithms are going to need to rent data or subscribe to data access. Tools, on the other hand, are likely to become commoditized, and tools are what most of these AI companies are producing. So I think a little bit of caution is in order there. Because tools, if they're commoditized, they're not going to be worth as much as you see these prices for AI companies being bidded up. Now, a peripherally related thing is scraping art. So this is technically known as algorithmic graphic referencing or derivative works. So this is like ChatGPT or BARD going out and scraping information, graphic information, and using it in their algorithm to construct images or analyze images and reach conclusions. So there's been some notable legal activity around this that's likely to set the rules going forward. The first is Getty Images versus Stability AI. And Getty is suing Stability AI, the maker of Stable Diffusion. That's an art tool. They're suing them for scraping millions of images from Getty Images websites without their permission. And Getty Images claims that this is a copyright infringement and is seeking damages, big damages. The second case is Artists versus Midjourney and Deviant Art. This is a group of artists who filed a class action lawsuit against Midjourney and Deviant Art, which are two AI art platforms, and they're accused them of allegedly scraping their artwork without permission. The U.S. artists are Sarah Anderson, Kelly McCurman, and Carla Ortiz, and they claim that this is a copyright infringement and, again, are seeking big damages. Third case is Artist versus OpenAI, the producer of ChatGPT, and Meta, also known as Facebook. Here, a group of artists are suing OpenAI, the maker of the AI art tool Dolly2, and Meta for allegedly scraping their artwork and their books without permission. The artists are Sarah Silverman and others that claim this is a copyright infringement and are seeking damages, big damages. 
And then one final useful piece of information on the scraping controversy is the May 18th decision by the Supreme Court that was a 7-2 vote ruling Andy Warhol infringed on photographer Lynn Goldsmith's copyright when he created a series of silkscreen images based on a photograph Goldsmith shot of the late musician Prince in 1981. This would appear to be a form of graphic referencing or derivative work that was done manually rather than algorithmic, but still pretty much the same thing, scraping an image. And the court found by a substantial majority that that was copyright infringement. So a couple of final things about AI, and one is on APIs. So an increasing number of companies are closing their APIs so that they can't be scraped. And so the algorithms as they currently exist are going to become less and less powerful because their database is shrinking and they'll have to pay to scrape. And that's going to raise the cost of the AI. And it's not clear how high that cost will be. And then finally, the growth of no-code and low-code with AI digital assistants is likely to grow explosively so that more and more companies, small companies, will be able to do their own platforms with these low-code solutions with an AI assistant that really empowers these low-code solutions to write original software. And so again, the algorithms are going to become commoditized because of this. Now, finally, to wrap up with crypto. So some big things happened in crypto in the last couple of weeks, some big lawsuits that will likely define the role of crypto in trading and the role of the SEC in regulating that trading. So the first is SEC versus Binance, where the SEC filed a lawsuit against Binance, which, by the way, is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. It filed that lawsuit on June 6th, alleging that Binance operates as an unregistered securities exchange and failed to register its digital tokens as securities. Now, Binance is kind of running scared. They've cut jobs just days after they were hit with this lawsuit, and they've had a wave of executive exits. And so Binance USA is looking like a goner. Then there is the SEC versus Coinbase. SEC filed a lawsuit against Coinbase, which of course is a major cryptocurrency exchange, just a day after their Binance lawsuit. The SEC alleged that Coinbase was operating as an unregistered securities exchange and failed to register its digital tokens as securities. Now, Coinbase is fighting that lawsuit and in fact is planning to move for summary judgment based on the recent Ripple judgment, which I'll get to in just a minute. So Coinbase's stock has surged based on the thought that Coinbase has a much stronger position now and is likely to prevail versus the SEC. So the SEC filed a lawsuit against Ripple Labs. That's the third event. Um, the company behind, this is the company behind the cryptocurrency XRP. Now, that's an old lawsuit. That was filed on December 22nd of 2020. And the SEC alleges that Ripple Labs sold XRP as an unregistered security. But Ripple Labs notched a landmark win versus the SEC over the XRP cryptocurrency, and that win undermines the SEC Howey's strategy to regulate crypto. But to be fair, U.S. District Judge Annalisa Torres did decide that whether tokens are securities or not depends on where and how they're sold. So tokens sold directly by Ripple Labs to institutional investors did qualify as investment contracts, according to the court, siding with the SEC. But buyers on other digital assets exchanges were trading anonymously, which did not make them securities. This may very well lead to an 
avalanche of individual crypto token lawsuits against the SEC, given the success that Ripple Labs has had. However, the SEC is very likely to appeal this decision, and that's going to take a while. So to further muddy the waters, there's been several Bitcoin ETF applications, as there is currently no spot Bitcoin ETF, only futures ETFs. These applications were submitted by BlackRock, Van Eck, Invesco, Galaxy Digital, Fidelity, and Wisdom Tree. Now, it's worth mentioning that ARK Invest slash 21 shares has already advanced beyond the application stage, so they previously applied. And Bitwise Investment received acknowledgement of their application just before these other companies applied recently. So a spot Bitcoin ETF is a very big deal for the cryptocurrency market since this would provide a major on-ramp for investors to gain exposure to Bitcoin bypassing stablecoins. So that's going to be a story to be told how that plays out, but we're likely to have some movement on those applications this year, maybe by December. We'll see. And then finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about central bank digital currency initiatives because those are coming closer. And, you know, the EU, the Fed, and a number of other central banks have been working on this for some time and are, are making progress. China is probably the farthest along. So there's some real potential benefits for consumers with the central bank digital currency that include improved efficiency of the payment system, so more efficient and cheaper for users, increased financial inclusion, so the CBDCs would make it easier for people to access financial services. And so converting those that are currently unbanked or underbanked to full financial inclusion. And then there's an enhancement to monetary policy in that the CBDCs could be used to enhance monetary policy by providing central banks with a new tool to manage the money supply. Now, that does raise some, some risks. One of the big potential risks is cybersecurity. CBDCs would have to be ironclad protected from cyber attack. And I don't know how you do that, and I'm not sure it's possible. And then getting back to enhanced monetary policy, there's some financial stability risk since CBDCs could pose risk to financial stability by increasing the risk of bank runs because of greater liquidity and greater access. Finally, there's a privacy risk in that whoever's running the CBDC would have access to spending habits of individual users so they could track their spending. So that's a little bit scary to know that the government could go back and look at all your spending. What would that mean? Would that require a legal hearing to do that? Would it just require a search warrant? Would it just be a decision of some bureaucrat? Who knows? So CBDCs are a story to be told. Very interesting, but probably nowhere near execution. And so that's it for today. I hope that was a decent substitute for founders Let me know what you think of the show, and if you'd like me to do more or less of these. This pod is supported by our own Rolling South Fund and by Venture Carolina, a nonprofit focused on entrepreneur and investor education. Connect with us on LinkedIn or at VentureInTheSouth.com.